Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and as always, I'm joined by Julian Darius. And we are going to be beaming aboard the Enterprise one more time. We did the motion picture, and now we are back, and we're going to be talking about the Wrath of Khan. So, Julian, how are you doing? You okay? (laughs) I was going to do something similar, and I thought, I don't know if it works. Too obvious. Yeah. Yeah. but yeah, talking about sort of Star Trek 2, 1982, this came out, which I think is a seminal year in film. I honestly think 1982 is, is a massive year, an under-acknowledged film uh, year. But this is this is a, an interesting film to talk about. Um, motion picture, we talked about. We both kind of liked it. Um, we'll go back to that at some point, maybe talk about it. But like, we both acknowledged that it was a bit slow. It, it has mm. great ideas, and it's about something, mm-hmm. and it's very is very um, akin to the original series in many ways, um, but didn't hit with main audiences. It's often considered one of the sort of like the lesser Trek films. And then we go into two, which to me is a completely different beast uh, and is actually considered uh, one of the best uh, Star Trek films. Um, Well, not only that, but I would argue pretty indisputably one of the best science fiction films ever made. And, you know, arguably one of the best films ever. I, uh, yeah, we're going to be, I think we're going to have some interesting points here because one of the things that I was thinking about watching this, because I've got the Blu-ray. And so um, I went back and I didn't watch it all. I just sort of scanned through, because I ran out of time, but I scanned through the original. It's on there is the original episode. Um, Spacey. Yeah, Spacey. So it introduces Khan, uh, you know, uh, what's it, Montalban. And so I was like, oh, cool. I'll go back and I sort of just skip through it to bits and pieces. And in my head, this is a question I want to ask as an early point as before we get into the whole thing, is, is watching that episode or is knowledge of that episode essential to this watching this film? No, it's not. And, and that's part of why this is a good movie, mm. is that it like you know there was a past encounter, but mm. you do not need to know it. And in fact, knowing it does not add anything. I mean, the most that it adds is the uh, ensign, I think, who was on the ship, who the female ensign who's like in love with the alpha male, Ricardo Maltaban, very 60s sort of like, <laughs> you know, alpha male, uh, you know, women can't resist the, the alpha male type. And she leaves with him. And then in this movie, he references my wife died. Um, and he also has a sort of pendant that is of the Starship Enterprise sort of or Starfleet, depending on what continuity you're talking about, logo, mm. which presumably was from her uh, somewhere. But outside of that, I mean, I don't think it adds anything. Do you? Um, 
not I don't think it adds anything. I think the film gives you enough, and I think that the I think the exposition is handled incredibly well for the most part to give you just enough information. Now, what I would say is because obviously the, it, this is one of those weird things where, um, and at one point I think we are going to have to touch on the J.J. Abrams Into Darkness as a yeah. bit of a thing at some point, but the film's called Wrath of Khan. Okay, so you going in, you sort of get, and obviously you know Ricardo Montalban is sort of like center of the poster, so you've sort of got this thing of what's going on. Like it's not hiding anything. There's no mystery to this film, really. If you you know, it's one of those that sort of if you know, you know. If you don't know, you're gonna be told pretty sort of quickly. Like it's gonna give you the information, and that's fine. However, I liked about in the film, there is almost like, because uh, it is it has got continuity and I do think it works, but there's little things that are going to give you, like if you haven't seen the original episode or if you've seen it, but like you you don't remember, like you, I'm assuming there could have been people that would have watched this on syndication and stuff, but like there's a bit where um, Chekhov, when they find the thing and he's like, Botany Bay. Yeah. Botany, in his realisation. Botany Bay. Yeah. And he's like, oh, we got to get out of here. Like this is not yeah. good. Um, I like those little moments. Like you say, there's enough Easter eggs and in, in continuity um, references in this that like, whilst I don't think the episode g- gives you anything, I no. think the film rewards you if you do have that knowledge. And I, that, that's why I actually think that's a, even makes it even better because it's sort of like, it's going to give you the information if you haven't, but if you have, Oh, it's going to be like, oh yeah, no, I know what's coming. It's sort of, it's, 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 but not enough to be fan service. It's just enough mm. pe- peppered in to be, um, to be that little bit of like you know nice little moments, which I, I think are actually really good. Well, I, I want to back up to thinking about like how we should frame or even understand this film, mm. um, because I, I think it's really important. Um, you know, it's true that Star Trek was a syndication and lots of people had seen Spacey and probably way more than saw it when it originally aired in the 60s. Mm. Having said that, the majority of people seeing this movie probably had not ever seen Spacey. Um, and this movie was made in the wake of the first one doing okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first one did well enough at the box office. It was a success. It was not a critical success. It was not a fan success, but it did financially well enough to get a sequel greenlight. Mm-hmm. And for the sequel, what's very interesting is that they stripped Gene Roddenberry of all power. Yeah. Roddenberry did not want this as the sequel. They said, yeah, well, you know, you doing it was what got us Star Trek one. And they, you know, took him off, basically. Um, this is not what he wanted. They acknowledged the crew aging. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the original motion picture, it's three years after the original series. Mm-hmm. Well, the original series, you know, ended in 69. The movie is, you know, way after that. It's more than a decade after that. Uh, yet it's supposed to be three years later. Um, this movie catches up to real time. And and I think in a really aggressive way, and Meyer, who, who wrote and directed this, was not a Star Trek fan. Mm. And so this was a very unconventional movie. It was intended to be the final film. I mean, everybody assumed 
like the first one and like everybody kind of hated but it did <laughs> well enough that it you know we could green light the sequel it doesn't make sense to not do a sequel but it doesn't make sense to go i mean it's a very strange situation to be in right where we've got to make a sequel but that sequel shouldn't be what it's what a we sequel made before. to yeah right and and so they did this weird thing you know uh obviously nimoy had wanted out mm-hmm. uh for a long time um and his views were respected and um you know it is intended to be a kind of swan song to the franchise mm. made by people who are not the star trek roddenberry types and yet it works so phenomenally fucking well oh yeah well this is one of the things i find interesting so i also watched i watched the director's cut which is like i think four minutes longer um doesn't make any massive changes it's not like a it's not this isn't like a you know blade runner or one of the you know situations where you need to watch the director's cut the theatrical cut works just as well just so happens i've got the blade uh, the uh, director's cut on blu-ray um, and I was watching it in that with that mindset. I was thinking, like, you know, what is this? Like, what what triggered this? As in, um, and I was I'm, I'm thinking about um, the way things changed and the way things were starting to change um, in movie making. And so in my head, I was thinking not just sort of in Star Trek, but I was thinking like the wider thing. So we'd had, you know, we've talked about in previous films more. Um, or more previous reviews, um, more contemplative and more sort of, you know, films that sort of like will go through and be about something and really want to dive into um, thing. And that was very much the sixties and seventies kind of thing. Like, you know, we talked about um, those films, and that's that's much what motion picture is about. Like, it's really sort of trying to be about something. And I love I love it for that. And you know, I do think um, there is um, something to be said for that. And I think that's the thing. However. We then had, since then, the 70s had started to give us a bit more action drive. You know, we'd started with sort of like, like, like cop films were becoming more sort of aggressive, you know, from Plenty, uh, Dirty Harry, French Connection, those things were coming through. We'd had Star Wars now, it's become a sort of as a blockbuster. So we'd had that sort of like push. Um, and 82 introduces a couple of things. 82 is a, is a fascinating year. You get uh, Rambo First Blood, uh, you get Conan the Barbarian. Uh, 48 hours like the action genre films are, are upping the ante in in the action sort of like department and then you get wrath of khan and it feels very much of a piece at the same time where they're like okay we've had all these films and now we, we've got to sort of up the ante and we've got to up the sort of like the action in some ways but they also try to balance it out with like you say with an aging crew um, and I love them for that because that's something I wanted to cover off. And so it, this film exists, and why I think this is a seminal year in film because it's sort of the action department is, is upped. And I feel that this film very much sort of like adds in uh, action and tension and, and in a way that I think, you know, the, the first one doesn't. And so it fits into that sort of mold of being, and that's why I think this is partly why it's so successful. Now that's not to say this isn't sort of like just an action focused film. It's not at all. But I think that when they consider some of the, the, the scenes um, that do contain action and stuff, like they're a bit more, um, 
there's there's something more to them. Do you know what I mean? And thing. So I, I think that's why it works for wider audiences. Like this hit a yeah. zeit, this hit on this hit on the zeitgeist that I think that you know a lot of those other films did as well. Well, I mean, let me let me tell you my basic analysis of this film, which is that it is, you know, sort of um, at once two parts that it is both this action movie. Mm -hmm. But the key thing about the action is that it's between two expert players. Yeah. This is like way before Dark Knight, way before, you know, any of that. These are two just expert players making smart maneuvers. And every single maneuver that you see is clever, is desperate, is is smart in how it turns the tables. Uh, again and again and again, you're watching just, uh, you know, expert players at the game go at each other mm. and and really go at each other in a desperate kind of way. And, and I think that comes across from, you know, the very first time Khan attacks, it's a surprise attack, and it disables the Enterprise, and you're talking about surrender. Mm. And they use the term surrender within minutes, and it's like, this is logical. We, we have to do this. Uh, right away, it's like we're in a different universe. We are up against a competent component. Uh, uh, opponent, we are, you know, uh, you know, in a in a uh, sort of grandmaster chess tournament, and I think that we rarely see that in films. And usually, when we see that in franchise films, it's embarrassingly bad. It does not work. Uh, here we see it, and it works. This is the template that all of those movies are copying from here on out, um, going through you know Dark Knight to you know all the X Men movies, all the Marvel movies. You know, every time you have the mastermind opponent, they're copying Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Um, but then the second thing is, it's it's got what we always talk about, and and I harp on, which is that it's about something, mm. and that this movie is at its core a meditation on death, in a way that still affects me. Well, uh, I'll, I'll, from I'll, the beginning to the end, it is thematically woven into every single scene. Um, every aspect of this movie is about death or life or rebirth or aging and you know so it is both this action movie right and this is like why you and I both respect and love Die Hard I mean, <clears throat> Die Hard is you know probably in my mind the best action movie ever because it does a great job at the action but all of the action is also about manhood it's also yes. about it serves a purpose. Yes. Yeah, it's tied to this deeper theme. And for me, Star Trek Two is both this like chess game, the ultimate kind of chess game action movie, and also this profound meditation on death. Well, you, yeah, yeah, I hundred percent agree with you saying that in this sort of this idea because I think the action is also handled incredibly well. You know, not is it is it is it about this masterclass, they, they actually sort of like, it's done at a pace that it's not rushed. And it's, like you say, it's sort of, it feels desperate, but it's never sort of like, and also it never, it never sort of dwindles down to, um, and this is where I think with future, let's talk about like, you know, future 
uh, installments of this franchise, you know, in particular like Generations, where it's like, oh, we've got to have Kirk fighting, and I'm like, I don't give a like Shatner's old now, like not old, but like you know, he's getting on. <laughs> I don't need him and you know, I don't need William Shatner and, and Ricardo Montalban fighting hand to hand on the bridge of the Enterprise. Like I don't need that. This needs to be two generals, as you say, sort of like you know, battling. And I think like that's why I think this film works because it doesn't degenerate into. Um, you know what I think some of the future films will degenerate into, which which gets frustrating. More well, the just sort of... to, just to interject for a second, hmm. uh, it is worth noting that although all of you know you cannot watch Star Trek Two without feeling the antipathy between Khan and Kirk, yeah. right? You know from you know Khan be now that's not in Spacey, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that's that's there in this. Okay. They never meet in person. No, it's all over. Sort of like, they it's all, yeah. never even are in the same scene together. Mm. That's staggering. Like, mm. think about the drama. These filmmakers make that. We all feel that they're never in the same damn shot together. Yeah, it's, it's and that's what I mean. Like, it's, it's, they're always kept at a distance, which really is why I think it it works even better. Because it doesn't degenerate to them sort of having to have a showdown or something. Um, and especially well, considering... What, I, what I'm saying is that that urge to like have them fight, right? Oh, it's restricted. It's such it's a wrong urge. Oh, 100%. This especially, is the movie that proves that's the wrong urge. What's funny to me is um, I, I was sort of... This is a while ago. I saw something that was talking about the types of captain that the Enterprise has had. And and Kirk is referred to as like the action captain, you know, and it's obviously referring more to the sort of the, the original series. And Picard is referred to as sort of like more to do with sort of the, well, not say intellectual, but there's a different sort of tone to Picard. However, when you get into the te- when you get into the films, uh, Kirk becomes a lot more. Kirk benefits from the films where I think Picard really gets like shafted by the films mm-hmm. because they're like, okay, we've now got to give um, Picard something to do. And so all of a sudden he's going to be fighting and shooting and all this other stuff. And it degenerates into that shooty, shooty, punchy, punchy a lot of the time. And I think that's why I, I feel that the next gen films are lesser. Um, the other thing that I want to sort of, is, is what you said about this sort of thing about death. And um, I've thought about this before, and again, watching it this time, I was really thinking, and I think there's a real yin and yang to this film in that thing you said about rebirth and death. And I think it is, it's about, <clears throat> there's a great um, genesis, obviously, the genesis, the genesis device, which is what um, they're, obviously this sort of boils down to, is a great metaphor for this because they actually say, like, they look, the main point of this, and I should say, is, we should probably give a plot synopsis, but they're looking for a planet with no life on it because they can bring life to that thing. But they, when they're sort of discussing how this can be a weapon, because you can program it to do anything that can create a new matrix. So if what if there is life there, it will destroy the life that exists there in order to create this new thing. So there's this real sort of like... Um, to like terraform the planet. To right? terraform the planet, yeah. It's not just a weapon, it's there to terraform. But it could destroy, you know, and that's the point that sort of like... Um, uh, McCoy makes later on. This is like a, you know, universe sort of like leveling weapon that you can program it to make whatever the hell you want, and it can destroy everything in its path. Um, and I like that this idea that this is this potential of destruction can then refer to. And it's all it was like you know, I think about the sort of um, is it Carly the sort of the 
you know, the, the the Hindu god of sort of like yeah. destruction and stuff. And it's always like, but out of that destruction comes new life, and that's sort of the point. Um, and this is, but it's but it's not as simple as that. And that's why I like this. There's not like because they could then have this as like a legacy movie, and they almost tease you with that because there's a whole new crew of cadets on the enterprise. And so there's this younger generation that's coming through. And this could almost feel like, as you said, this was a swan song film and it definitely feels like that. Although it inspired a furthering of the franchise. There could be that thing of like, if this was a new film, if, if this was a 21st century film, they would have most definitely been handing off to the next generation. And yeah. they were like, here's the five cadets that are going to be the new crew and all this other stuff. Yeah. Like, but I like the fact that in the director's cut in particular, like you are introduced to a cadet who works engineering. This is his first tour out. And you find out in the director's cut that he is Scotty's nephew. Mm-hmm. And so when they are, when they are hit and sh- fired upon by Khan and Scotty turns up at the, uh, in the, what's it at the, the, the doors open and he's holding a body of that kid. Like, yeah it's so much more impactful in the director's cut because you're like, not only is this sort of like a young cadet or a young person who's like been killed in their first tour, like this is Scotty's nephew. Like he was sworn to protect him. And like, it shows you that sort of like, this is dangerous. This is dangerous to be in space, but also like you are not safe just because you're a cadet. There's no one safe in this film. You are, can be young and stuff. And I love that. And not in that sense of like mean, but like, it, you know, it's going to be, that's what I'm saying. This film's kind of brave in those respects. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're talking about is taking that trope of like, this is the future, this is mm. the next generation, and saying, yeah, well, you can still die. Uh, you're not saved because, you know, fate has designated you the next generation. Um, and that's true. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that that sense of casualties is so high in this film. Mm. Uh, it's something that, you know, the thing is, like, this movie is so different from what's gone before, in some mm. sense. Um, you know, we've talked about how it, you know, it was not made by the Star Trek people, right? <laughs> um, and, and the motion picture is much more the Star Trek movie, right? Yes. Having said that, it's staggering, first of all, how much all of the rest of the motion pictures are sequels to this. Um you know, secondly, this is such a real reboot. Mm. Uh, Chekhov is off on another ship. Uh, yes. Kirk has retired again. You know, uh, a decade and a half have passed. And Kirk has accepted a promotion and retired. Like, they have new uniforms. Mm. A long time has passed. You know, this whole trainee situation is part and parcel of, just like in the motion picture, Lots of changes had happened, but it was, you know, three years have passed. The the five-year mission's over. Here it's like, yeah, well, probably you serve 10 years, twice as long as the original series, mm. um, you know, on the 1701A. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess it's, it's still the 1701 retrofit. It's not the A until after Star Trek IV. Uh, Sorry for my keep though. But um yeah, so you know, like there's this massive like ten season long Star Trek show that happened between episode, you know, movie one and two that you mm. never get to see. And it's amazing how much everything we associate with the motion picture era 
is really all a sequel to two. Oh, a hundred percent. I, and it's, it's, you know, if anything, I mean, um, two, three, and four are a trilogy in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and again, I like that. I enjoy those films, you know, um, there's, they are, of varying quality, I think people have issues yeah. with three. I kind of like three, though, and I, in fact, I like. I will, I will happily defend most of, in fact, all of the original series or the original crew Star Trek films. But yeah, you're right. That this, this, it's almost like this is a reboot. This is that first idea. This is one of those first sort of reboots and going in a completely different direction. Yeah, and and it's you know, it's you. I don't think you'd have seen this before, and it's shown in almost every aspect of this film. Um highlights a difference and first of all i love the new uniforms i think the new uniform mm-hmm. designs are great and the fact they sort of stick around for quite a bit is cool but the, what, what i would say is that this film um the first um 10 minutes of this film maybe even a little bit more actually it is it, it, we'll say about the exposition like it throws you into things so you end up sort of like with uh savick paid by kirstie alley um at the, at the helm and she's sort of, you know, as sort of leading this thing through, you don't know what it is at first. You sort of see, but she's got the original crew around her. She's got McCoy, she's got uh, Hura and Spark and this sort of thing. Like you don't know what it is at first. And then she's just like, Oh, what the hell? Where's Kirk? What is this? Like, you know, but you're thrown into it and it's obviously turns out to be the Kobayashi Maru test. Um, and it's I love it set up like you know she she's decisive Savick's decisive and she makes his decision but it's a no win situ no win situation which I know is obviously a, a big part of this film and it, people get blown up and I kind of love the fact that again you see about this acknowledges the age this acknowledges an awful lot else as well because then when it's over and it's me 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 and it's sort of okay end simulation it gives Kirk a hero shot uh, you get mm. that. Here's Kirk entering the story. He's backlit. You get the yes. silhouette. Like Kirk gets brilliantly the backlit. Oh yeah, it looks fantastic. But yeah. he gets that hero shot as he enters into the story. Um, but it's then sort of like not pompous. He's not thinking. He's sort of like you know he he is still Kirk. And they all get up. And I like the fact that like you know he then jokes with McCoy who's lying on the floor. And McCoy's like you know you've seen all them throw themselves around over the banisters and over the consoles yeah. and so stuff. And he's like, what did you think of my performance? And I like the fact that it then throws you, you know, it's throwing you this curveball to be like, oh no, that was all a simulation. And it's, you know, mm. it was for, not for, you know, for fun, but it's for training purposes and they have to act. And I kind of like that, that like you're then acting like Kurt, not, not only McCoy, I can, I, you know, McCoy and Spock agreeing to do this performance. I can, I can, I, you know, I'm like, it just it, I love that. There's a there's a weird sort of warmth to the relationships again. Um, but I love this introduction to all these characters. That is then, so you've been given this hero introduction of Kirk. Yeah. That is then almost instantly um juxtaposed against him having to wear undermined. Glasses. Undermined completely by him having to yeah. wear glasses, not wanting to acknowledge his birthday. McCoy's age, age, the fact he's an antique and he's just yes. part of this collection. And I was like, wow, like you're really doing this yin and yang thing where you're going to give us this hero shot. You're going to give us this almost like um, this massive sort of like, you know, like, you know, almost like you might as well have his, his hands on his hips for God's sake. Yeah. To then completely undercut it by going, oh yeah, you're into, you're into late middle age 
you might as well be facing to retirement. Our better days are behind us, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, you're really going to... And they do it repeatedly in this film. They'll do this where they'll give you something and then they'll undercut it with another sort of thing. And because it's not, and it's not just with Kirk. They do it with Khan later on, which I want to get into. But yeah. like, I think it's fantastic. Well, I think the opening of this film is brilliant. I, I have like thirty minutes worth of comments <laughs> on what you've just said. I mean, the first is what's always struck me is that opening is you know, after the brilliant James Horner score, which we can't credit him enough. Mm-hmm. Um, is that sense of drama? that you know you're going to open with killing off the whole crew right i mean how can you possibly have a more dramatic opening and then that's obviously wed to the themes of death and aging and all of this so you know it, it seems to me that's exactly what i was talking about about you know you know you were talking about the action and i was talking about the you know the metaphysics the you know, the deeper meaning, um, you know, this is a movie that's able to give you that drama and, and also wed it to the theme that is going to be woven through the whole thing. They don't make movies like this anymore. No. I mean, this, this is what you're taught is good writing, but we just don't even care anymore. Um, you know, the idea that you can be dramatic but you can wed it to your theme. You can wed it to these deeper issues that have that same um, scene serve multiple purposes. You're mentioning about McCoy. What he says when he stands over McCoy is, physician, heal thyself. Mm. Every line in this movie feels like it's gone through 12 revisions. Yeah. And, and not just in a, like, you know, the new intern you know uh has been asked to revise it but like no smart people have revised this and made this as smart as possible i love that about this film it feels revised it feels polished in in you know uh more than most shakespeare plays frankly i mean it feels like it's, it has gone through that process of um uh, revision to make every line of dialogue count um, in, in the way that we're taught screenplays should do. Yeah. W- one of the things that I think we've, well, that we, we've said a comment numerous times about films of like, this could have done with one more pass at the script. This film feels like it had that one more pass. And I, and I, I love it. For and probably it. four more. Oh yeah. You know, that, yeah. that took it from like good to like amazing. Yeah, because you, you say about the whole thing about death. One of the, and, and I do think death's a, a thing, but one of the things I love about this film is another theme that I want to throw out is, and I've said about the undermining of like, it sets up this hero thing at the beginning and then it keeps, it keeps undermining Kirk. Um, it, yeah. But not only that, it wants to undermine uh, Starfleet. It wants to sort of throw away this whole Gene Roddenberry thing of like, yeah. here's this utopian thing where nobody argues and stuff like, oh no, like, you know, I like the fact that when you get to um, Dr. Uh, what's her name? I'm going to have to, sorry, just find it. Uh, Carol Marcus, Marcus Carol, Carol Marcus. Marcus, yeah, Carol and David Marcus, and you've got this sense of like they don't trust Starfleet. Like David sees them as like a militaristic thing. Yes, and and you know she's like, well, no, not wholly. Like they do exploration, but he's like, no, like they, you know, there's been battles and they've got guns and like that's what they do. Like they will find a way to weaponize this 
creation that we've built. Like he does not trust Starfleet. And so again, you're a bit like, okay, well, we've seen them different. We know them for as explorers. We know this other thing. And then you're introduced to, uh, when you meet Khan, and Khan gives his shows that, like, you know, because of this event that pushed his, the planet, one was destroyed and then was pushed out of its orbit. I'm not going to go through the science and the physics of that. I don't care. But, like, it's left there. Like, he was left on this barren thing. And they instantly say, we, we were left here. We were exiled. Because Kirk never came back. Yeah, and no, no, that's no, right. But no, Kirk, but Starfleet never came back. Yeah. So again, like you are being given information that shows that David's actually right. <laughs> so they're going to show you the fault of Starfleet instead to keep showing you that, oh, yeah, he's not wrong. Um, and I, so I like that, that they're not going to keep um, uh, lionizing and iconicizing Starfleet and Kirk. Like They are going to show you that there are problems with this and that's going to keep coming up. And I, I, I was, again, I love, I love that. Yeah, well, you know, when we were talking about this film um, after the last one, mm. and we were sort of, uh, you know, you were saying, like, you know, uh, expressing maybe some guilt over how mean we are to Star <laughs> Wars versus Star Trek. Um, I mean, you know, I think we were kind to Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, I, I think we acknowledge it was better than the first one, but that it has problems. If you look at that versus this, you're in a different world. Mm. Empire is the early stages of establishing your own franchise, right? Clunky. Mm. Much better than the first one, but still clunky. Uh, reaching out in the darkness trying to to do that and and visually and and i don't mean to distract certainly visually much better than mm -hmm. star trek 2 on i mean if you have to watch these two on mute uh empire is a better movie um having said that um you know it is amazing to me that we you know you keep talking about like the legacy features of that we're in this period of legacy movies. We're in this period of uh, sort of uh, characters in Star Wars transitioning, right? Mm. Um, and, and in all these franchises, sort of transitioning um, are failing to do so. Star Wars 2, I mean, Star Trek 2 shows you how that's done. Star Trek 2 acknowledges from the beginning they're old, they're tired. What was this about? I'm training the next generation. Um, you know, how do I understand this? And also that that sense of the mistakes. When we talked about uh, Doctor Who, your mantra was, I want to see Doctor Who have to deal with not following through on these original episodes. This is a Star Wars, a Star Trek movie in 1982 that, that does yeah. exactly that yeah. that knows that is a problem of the original show that it does not follow through that it's very easy to show those heroes being you know 1960s Kennedy era conquering heroes but what do you do to support that nation you know 20 years later this is 1982 and it's doing things that are so radical mm. 40 years on it's, it's like a, a whole other level compared to Empire. 
is what oh, I'm saying. Yeah. And, and Empire's cool. We both defended Empire. But I mean, this is like doing some deep shit. Well, the, the, yeah, it is. And I think this is the thing. It's sort of because it sort of, it, um, by removing the Gene Roddenberry element, obviously, it allows them to do that because you are able to tarnish and, you know, and humanize um, these characters, you know, oddly saying that about sort of Spock and things. And we should highlight as well the lack of aliens that exist in this, in this planet, in this thing. But, you know, that's besides the point. But I do like the fact that this does, is able to tarnish that legacy a little bit to show that it's not just this, like you say, all-conquering sort of like expansion or exploration. There are consequences. Um, and I like that, like you say, they're acknowledging their age. But the other thing is you say about the aesthetics of this um, compared to um, Empire. Well, I'd also compare it to the aesthetics and to the visuals of um motion picture one of the things i'd say is sort of motion picture like you know there are scenes in the cargo bay and in corridors that are brightly lit you know it's shown to be expansive you are shown parts of sort of like san francisco's uh, starfleet academy and all those things all that is in that that's gone in this film like this film is back to being not it's not as in it's not quite industrial sci-fi in the same way as outland you know it's not sort of like uh, raw pipes and stuff everywhere, but this feels this is back to a this is a ship, this is a productive ship. Like, you know, um, everything seems claustrophobic, it's small, they're either you know, they're either in a laboratory or they're underground at some points, and sort of things like mm-hmm. it tries to sort of it removes all that um space and it tries to keep every, this film's thing of like con- being contained. And you know, is 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 a big part. Like even like when it goes to like Kirk's apartment, like you don't see like these vast corridors or anything that go in there. Like you know, they do have a corridor shot every now and then, but like it's all contained, it's all within. And so I, I like that. The aesthetic to me is it's slightly darker. I mean, I don't mean darker as in like tonally. I mean like it's literally less lit, but it's done in a certain way that I think is is done intentionally. To sort of because it fits with the tone of the film. Like if this was all brightly lit and then you did the stuff with the film, the tones of yeah. death and rebirth, like it wouldn't work. It would feel sort of incongruous. So I think actually like the aesthetic of this film fits perfectly with the message. And I, I agree if you take if you were to sort of have it on mute, it might look worse. But I think it works exactly for the purpose of what, what it is they're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I, I love those uh the sort of nacelles, mm. um, you know, and, and that are that are repeated on the walls of the mm. quarters. That design work um, is stunning to me, and you're right; it still feels cramped. Yeah, you're constantly reminded, like there are the curved walls, and you and you see a curved wall with a fireplace in it, and you think, what a lovely sort of like Frank Lloyd Wright esque screw space design, right? Mm. And yet, um, then the quarters around it seem kind of cramped. And you think, like, why did you give up all the space for this curved wall uh, if you could have avoided it? Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a very basic sort of uh, architectural observation that you're making that I think is, is entirely correct. I, I, I guess my only, my only minor quibble, although, I mean, 
100% agree is that I don't know that it would undermine, I don't know how it would affect the overall message about death. Um, partly because I think that the movie wants to have a friendlier um, acknowledgement of death at the end mm. than I would. Um, I, I think the movie uh, is not honest at the end. I mean, as much as I love this movie, I mean, I think that it thinks out uh, at the end in, in, in certain ways. Um, I think it's I will say this um, I cried watching this this time mm-hmm. um, as Spock dies you know I never realized uh, he's blind oh, from it, the radiation oh yeah oh do you never realize he's, that I know ne- that never occurred to me Ah, uh, it's just like he—he's stumbling into the wall. It, it, maybe at most he can see a kind of a shadow of Kirk. That never really hit me until this time. Yeah, we'll get to this, the the, the spot because I think it, 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 every time I've seen this, like I will, I'll acknowledge that that scene hits me, and often it hits me in different ways as I've got older. Um, and and and, and even watching it this time. I had sort of a slightly different take. Not a slightly different take, but it hit me in a different way. Because one of the things I think this film does well, and we've talked about the legacy, is obviously because it acknowledges their age and stuff. Like, I love the chemistry. You know, Yes, off screen, I'm sure there was issues and there's always been slightly contentious things between uh, Shatner and some of the rest of the crew. But the chemistry between um, McCoy, Sh- uh, um, Kirk and Spark just works. Like, yeah. I, the, the McCoy frustration with, you know, your, your, your green-blooded elf kind of thing, sort of like, even though it's, it's you know, there's that weirdly sort of casual racism in it, it's still sort of like, it feels like there's a, you still know that McCoy would do anything for Spock and all this other stuff. Like, there's still that thing there. Um, it's just the way he sort of articulates it. But I love that relationship of the three of them like stands out. We mentioned it in the film from the first film. There's a couple of scenes that worked for me in the first film, and it's the same here. But there's a point where Spock, in particular, um, when they're going, they're going after this thing. They go after the sort of the there's this. Uh, you know, he learns about the Genesis. Carol Marcus contacts him. He's like, okay, we've got to go find out. Well, now this is this is going to go on from a training mission to an investigation, and Spock hands over the reins. And he says then, sort of like, you know, there's that thing of like, he says to him the same line, doesn't it? Like, I am I am forever and have been and always will be your friend yeah. and I am yours. Sort of like, you know, basically, I trust you implicitly. Like, you know, you, this is, you are the senior officer and I entrust you implicitly. And it, 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 it pays out. Like, this isn't just like, Kurt, it, we said the funny thing about the first film, in contrast to this, is Kurt turns up and takes over the ship. Yeah where he's like, I'm the senior officer and I'm in charge. In this one, he's reluctant. And he says like, no, 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 I'll just stand yeah. back. And it's Spock is like, this is your, you know, this is your ship. This is your mission. Like, you know, you take charge. And it's an, it's an agreement between the two of them. And so I love that friendship and that acknowledgement. There's no bitterness. There is no ego. There's no, you know, it's there as equals. Like this is Captain Spock. This is his ship. And so it pays out throughout. And especially in that. So when you get to the end, and you get the the re sort of like the reuse of that line, like it, oh, it blows me away. 
Um, and I it like... blows me away too, but uh, it needs to be pointed out that Spock defers to him mm. because he's a Vulcan. And he That's says, true. There is that. Like, yeah. you know, he says, you, there's this wonderful line about, like, you confuse me for someone with an ego who can be bruised. Right? Yes. Like, you are, you want to take over the ship, obviously, you know, you're concerned about replacing me. I don't have an ego to bruise here. Mm. I mean, there's this wonderful line, and, and yet, it's the subordinate who's killed. How is that not just a continuation of the same privilege of, uh, you know, Scotty's nephew died, right? Mm. You know, like the red shirt experience. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, I've, I've no. got a lot of thoughts about the, about the okay. end of this. But... Well, let's, let's get to it because we haven't really spoke, talked about uh, Khan or anything yet, but I do want to get yeah, to this. Yeah, the... indeed. Because the death of so they do get Let's talk to about Khan first, right? Because because Khan should come before the death. Yeah, exactly. Because I think there's this this they form a part of each other. So Khan, they obviously get to uh, the planet, um, and they've mistaken it because obviously there's been this this sort of like interstellar uh, balls up or whatever. And the introduction's all well and good. I think it's well overlaid that it's they're looking for a planet to sort of to test this the the Genesis device, and they have to go down to it because they actually. I look again. This thing about Starfleet, like you know, there cannot be any life on this planet. Like that is the rule. It has to be a completely dead planet. And so they're going down to do this investigation. I'm not quite sure what they're looking for. Like you know, like what being down there with like a scanner could have should clearly be better. But they go down to the planet. And they find the, the the cargo things, the botany bay. Um and you were then introduced to these sort of like Mad Max looking <laughs> cast of sort of like uh people surviving it. And again, I like the fact that the, again, one of the things I'm really sort of uh we talk about the aesthetic of this, it's a little bit silly, like the whole bare chest thing. You know, it's it's fine, it's very iconic. Yeah. Um, but when you first meet them and they've become, you know, I think my only reference would be like sand people of Star Wars. Like, but like it's there's a reveal moment of like you know um, Khan is revealed in that sort of like Ian wraps and he sort of takes off his mask and but even the fact that like the design that they've given him for this sort of desert living this this horrendous is pretty well thought out. They're like oh it's not just one layer like he's wearing like three layers to cover his face because it's so dusty and of the night i like that and again sort of like you know you meet these people so khan's reveal that you've been given this hero entrance of of kirk and then you are given this sort of like villain reveal of um uh khan and i like the, the fact that they're going to then almost undermine that as well a little bit when you get, he gets his justification but um it's interesting how they sort of they've done this thing of this this unlayering of 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 Khan. Yeah, I, I like that kind of like Dune esque uh, mm. sort of sand person kind of thing. You know, the other thing is that you know I sometimes wonder when we talk about villains. Uh, you know, I, you know this is like the the Khan moment where he thinks about like oh James D Kirk. Um, 
you know, he stranded me here. Stranded, stranded me. Well, recall the Maltaban gets the shine and he does later with a sort of buried alive thing. Uh, you know, how powerful is it just to watch a villain talk about how much he hates the hero? I think about like, you know, Nicholson, the first Batman, where he's like, you know, I've given a name to my pain, Bob, mm. and it is the Batman. You know, I mean, it's so powerful just to hear the villains say, I really hate this guy. And yeah. so often we don't even get that. And that seems like such a cheap, like, it, it doesn't make sense necessarily that like everything in Khan's life should be about like I was revived and then Kirk stranded me, right? But it works for the film. Well, you see, it shouldn't. You say it shouldn't work. It sort of works because one of the things I hate uh, it, it's become almost like the cliche, the opposite cliche of this is when you sort of you have the villain say something like, "I don't hate you. This is just logic, or this is just the, the plan, or whatever." Like, no, no, hate the villain. They're trying to stop you. Um, but I like the fact that like we we one of the things about um, we we've said this thing about Kirk it gets undermined as as a hero, mm. and you've said about sort of like um, Khan about this masterclass, this chess game between the two of them. One of the things I like about Khan is you meet him when you meet him, and he does like you know he says he tests me, he tests me. Now he has this like he's Ricardo Montalban is fantastic in this role. Like he's clearly relishing this this role, uh, and he brings some great moments and some great line readings. But one of the things I love most is like you say this is he blames Kirk. Kirk is because it's not Kirk; it's Starfleet. Like Starfleet is the one. Like why should Kirk have come back? Like Starfleet. Because even even like um, um, Chekhov sort of says like, well, when you when you last met, like you tried to kill him and take his ship, and like he's like, why should he come back? But like, fine, yeah. Kirk shouldn't come back, but Kirk should have put a Starfleet should have followed up. You know, there should have been some sort of follow up on this. But he blames it on Kirk, and it's almost become like Kirk has become like the the focal point of this this anger and this frustration. Um, and so I like the fact that that's to happen, and it's become like you—you you realize it's an obsession. Like, and I'm sure, I mean, like the death of his wife has probably become the tipping point. Like, you know, because um, it could have gone the other way. Like, if this interstellar incident hadn't have happened, and they went back and, and whatever the planet, what's it six or six and what's it five is fine and it's flourishing, yeah. like, there would have been a completely different story. Like, you know, this film would never have taken place. But this thing, the wrath of Khan, this anger, this frustration, this this revenge driven at Kirk is misplaced, but it's an obsession as well. And so what you say is he he is, um, uh, you know, this genius, and he is, he's obviously good. I like the fact at one point when they've stolen the ship, the other ship, um, which uh, the name eludes me at the moment, but like the one that, that Chekhov is on, one of his like his like, like lieutenants or whatever comes up to him is like we can go anywhere, like yeah. you've you've proven your point, you escaped this planet, you've now we let's go like the galaxy is ours, let's get the hell out of here, which is the logical conclusion. Run, go make a go set up somewhere else and become a yeah. better, but he cannot let go, and that's when he's like he that's when he says like he tests me, he tests me, like his obsession. His villainy is what supersedes his common sense, and so it, his his 
even his own uh, posturing is undermined again by his obsession. And I, that's why I like that as well, that neither of these guys are perfect. Well, the same thing is true of uh, Khan going into the nebula at the end. Mm. Uh, you know, so I mean, what what I love, so I mean, you know, going back to the, the two points that I love, you know, one is the sort of like convincing chess match between mm. these two guys, and the other is this theme of death, right? That convincing chess match, you know, starts with a surprise attack by mm -hmm. Khan that is just devastating, destroys the enterprise filled with trainees, right? Um, um, you know, kills Scotty's nephew, um, and leads to we've got to surrender, right? Then that's followed by the you know smart maneuver of like we're going to drop their shields using their code. Mm. Um, if he hasn't changed it, let's you know fake them out, drop shields. Oh, we're transferring the data now, Khan. We're transferring it now. Here it is. Um, you know, followed by a uh, sort of pause where they go on the asteroid and you have the whole, like, the Matrix formed in seven days kind of, you know, memorable sort of dialogue about Genesis. And the assassination attempt, uh, you know, followed by beaming out of Genesis, the whole days being months kind of, you know, other way of tricking Khan, uh, you know, recovery and going into the nebula. By that point, you've had like four reversals. Mm. I mean, you know, and again, I mean, you know, I could write this, you could write this, but it's still smart. Mm. Oh, it's yeah. still like, you know, these are smart people. And yeah, Khan's obsessed. But, you know, what what stuns me, and, and you know, you mentioned Star Trek Into Darkness, which is one of the worst movies ever made in mm -hmm. history. Um, you know, and, and I thought about that especially as you were sort of raking me over the coals slightly for being the Star Trek uh, fan. Uh, well, I'm not indisputably, you know, the Star Trek fan. I'm not going to defend crap. Um, but, you know, here we have somebody who is obsessed and it works. Mm. Uh, there we have somebody who's just a shadow of this person. And you know, it strikes me how Abrams uh, was frustrated by the lack of great Star Trek villains and turned to Khan mm. because of this film. Because this film is so highly regarded and that chess game is so highly regarded. And yet his version of a chess game is like a, you know, uh, a dog's version of what it's humans that, yeah. are doing during it's, chess, it's right? Playing, it's playing Ludo. It's a completely different game. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it's it's nonsense. Um, it, it's completely maddening how dumb it is. Um, but but also, this idea that, like, Hunt is the ultimate villain. Well, he was in Spacey. That has almost no relationship to mm. this film. It's great that he has this vengeance uh, you know, the wrath of Khan is so key. This desire to go one-on-one -on -one with Kirk and take him down and be willing to die to do it over and over again. That's key to this film. And yet, that's not true in, you know, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Khan is not the ultimate Star Trek villain. Mm. 
what's relevant is that he has a vendetta and that he's really smart. That's it. Yeah. That's all you need. Stop trying to copy Khan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, the, the, the thing is that the point of Khan comparing it to the Cumberbatch version or the J.J. Abrams version later on is the legacy, though. Like you say, it's the wrath, isn't it? Like, it's that, that point of... We, we talk about this a 10-season show between the first film and this film. And there's a 15-season film, you know, 15-season show uh, between uh, Space Seed and this. Yeah. So you've got a decade and a half of events and resentment and obsession bubbling over that come to the events of this film. And like you say, the exposition's handled so well in this film that you don't need to know what's happened in those 10 years. You get enough to know this is what's happened and this is why there's that frustration and that that, that desire for vengeance and why sort of Kirk has become the focal point of that. But then when you get to the J.J. Abrams version, it's sort of like, it's like the two characters are just inserted into the same story. Um, and, you know... It doesn't. The, the, Khan's uh, even Khan's uh, plot doesn't really make a great deal of sense in this in in into darkness. And as we've said, this is a, this, they don't share a they don't share a uh, you know um, the a shot really in this film. Like they're kept at a distance for a reason to build tension. And as I said, unfortunately. Um, it, it's turned around, isn't it? Obviously, you know, Into Darkness becomes shooty, shooty, punchy, punchy pretty quickly and has that old big ending and then they try to redo the ending with Kirk instead of Spock. And, oh, yeah. You know, and it, none of it works because it doesn't have the legacy. The fact that this film is, like say, a contemplation of death and legacy and, and old age is the reason that all those things work. If you're going to go, here's a young, sexy crew, and now we're going to have these <laughs> moments, like it just doesn't work. Like this, this film, this film is loaded with baggage um, in that sense, and not just in Kirk and, and um, uh, Khan. Like you see, like you say, like you know, um, Chekhov is on a different ship. They're training uh, new recruits. Yeah. Kirk is now an admiral. Yeah. Uh, Spock is a captain. You've you know you've seen this new this whole this whole film is loaded with this baggage of age and yes and and stuff and you know, they're re they're retrofitting even the, the whole birthday the glasses all everything yeah. it feels a part my of my nephew the next generation exactly like, feels, yeah and all of this all that yeah. stuff is in the first fifteen to twenty minutes to tell you exactly why this film is the way it is even the fact even. Um, introducing, and we should talk about this, like, you know, with Khan, he's lost things, right? So this is the thing. This is one of the things I want to yeah. sort of talk about this film. It, that's really struck me. Khan lost someone, okay? <clears throat> and what we find out is that Kirk gains someone, for, at least from our perspective, because he finds out, he, well, he, his son in, in David uh, Marcus. And so, again, not just Next Generation, but where Khan has lost his wife and sort of, like, you know, he's, he's been exiled... Again, like you know, they're giving, and it's a bit a little cheap because there's the potential for the red shirting of of, of David Marcus. Doesn't happen. Doesn't, yeah. happen, doesn't happen yet. But right. um, um, it could have been, and I'm glad it. But I'm glad it doesn't because it could have been a really cheap thing to be like, we're going to introduce his son for him to be, yeah, sacrificed in some means. But he's if, not. If anything, by the end of this film, he's set up to be like one of the recurring cast members. Should this continue? Exactly. Which I would have loved to have seen. 
Yeah, he's almost set up to be that next generation. And so, again, yeah. like, this is one of the things I like that this film does, that it's saying, like, oh, there's a whole bunch of stuff you do not know, like, you know, like that, that's gone on before. Like, there's a, you know, like, even before the, the original show, like, he was with Carol Marcus. He's got this son that he was told not to be a part of his life, blah, 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 blah. So um, I, I like that. And so like, you keep getting these sort of these little things. That, that just show you this weight of time and this weight of life yeah. and baggage that the, the films, that future films just don't have. And that's why I think this resonates with me so much, especially as I'm sort of entering my 40s. Like I'm watching this now and I'm going like, yeah, I've got this whole history. Like I've got like 40 years, soon to be 41 years of legacy and baggage. And there are, you know, you, there are times that you come across people and, and, people come out of the woodwork and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's where this film sort of resonated with me in so many ways of like, you do have people like, you know, I wear glasses. Like I'm wearing glasses now. Like I wear them for different things. So when Kirk's getting his glasses out to read his book or he's holding that book at a distance and stuff, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like I feel you brother. Like <laughs> I'm feeling the age. And I, so I like all that stuff. And, but like, that's where I'm sort of watching newer films. Yeah. Um, and I'm going like that's why that's why Into Darkness was such an utter catastrophic failure for me, is because it tried to cheap what? it and shortcut it, and but this film seems the the Wrath of Khan has an authenticity and a, a, a legacy that feels that I feel even if you haven't seen anything else you can watch it no, and you can you don't need space no but you can see that legacy is there and it's portrayed in a fantastic way, um, so the, yeah that's the point I was trying to make. Well, and that's how this should be done, right? You shouldn't Mm. have to have seen the, you know, films that came first. You know, even Star Trek 1, you don't have to see. You know this is somebody who's been doing this a while. Um, And it works on that level. You don't need that information. Um, I also was thinking of sort of the Shadows of Empire, the legacy that both of our countries have. Mm. Starfleet didn't bother to check up, right? Yeah. You're talking about an institutional failure. Here's a man who's invested in his country, right? In his program for making the world a better place, however imperfect it may be. And here is a third world person who was left behind by that kind of program. Who, you know, I mean, both of us, well, one of us lives in a republic and the other in a republic with a with a monarchy attached for God knows what reason. But, you know, both of us live in ostensibly electable governments. Mm-hmm. And and one of the problems of that is lack of follow through. We both have had countries that we have intervened in and helped that we have not followed through with to make sure that they were really doing better and that our promises were kept yeah um and kirk is part of that system it's not a bad system it's not a system that is horrific to the core it's a system that has problems hmm. uh it can be fixed but kirk is a, a justifiably heroic character but he's also attached to a system that is imperfect that has this history. And I think that is also interesting too. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, this is the thing we, you know, well, it leads me on to a point I want to kind of make actually, but you're right. I mean, this is the thing that like, the, the, and this is, goes back to what this film 
sort of covers. It's like an in-between film in the sense of like you said about the, the original series. Um that Kennedy you said that Kennedy era exploration, the pushing boundaries, and that's what the show was about. You know, that's what Gene Roddenberry was about. That sort of like, you know, the push for the future, that sort of and it was that was the focus of that show to try and address um different things. It was going to take and we say that even the you know the original show was brave. It took on um ideas and controversial themes at the time, you know, sort of racism, interracial things and, and blah blah lots of different things. But this show is now going, this film is now sort of saying, that was great, but there's a follow-up and that needs to happen. To the extent, and this is one of the things I find interesting with both Star Wars and with Trek, Star Trek, and we've joked about this before, we talked about it with Empire Strikes Back, is there are, we've talked about it every time we spoke Star Wars, but like, you know, oh, you, you can, I'm sure you can go off and find a comic or a TV show or a book that fills in the plot hole of this thing there's a canonized version of why that happened or who did it do you know what i mean that sort of thing yeah um and so they've tried they try to retrospectively fill that gap one of the things that's sort of come out of of, of trek that i find interesting especially most recently so there's the film there's the tv show the cartoon lower decks um and lower decks has an interesting class and it actually highlighted once that 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 ship the california class of ship which is in that does second contacts. That's one of their yeah. primary purposes. And there's an acknowledgement in that film, in the TV show of, oh, we came out of this event. Like, oh, yeah, no, the whole thing with Khan, yeah, that was a real cock up on our part. So we've now instituted a second contact and follow-up process where we don't need to use massive starships. We have the California class. That's their purpose. And so, like, you know, it's not retroactively, it's... It's not like what I find with Star Wars is they try to retroactively sort of like correct things. Do you know what I mean? They go, oh, no, 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 you, it's not a plot hole. It's this. It's a story point for right. somebody else. Where Star Trek will go, no, no there's, a, there's an ongoing continuity and it was a mistake. And we acknowledge there was a mistake. And here's how after that point in, in canonized timeline, we corrected it. And they do this with TNG. They've done it with some other series as well. I like that. I mean, that's what Picard, the series Picard, sort of doing, isn't it? Sort of going, yeah, we're we're, we're looking back at things and going, this was something we're looking. You know, we're going to reflect on this things that happened either in a past TV show or something else, and we're going to look at how age and time and uh, attitudes change, and we have to change with them. We're not going to go back and say, oh no, no, what you don't know is off screen this was happening. Hmm. It's a case of we're going, we know this was a was clunky and we're going to try and um you know we're going to show you how that has impacted on things and i think i prefer that approach um well i mean you're describing two different approaches to sort of retconning or dealing with problems um i think that's uh profound you know approach a is sort of deny it's a problem Mm. um I am struck every time that I look at Star Wars stuff online, how much of that is the case. Yeah. Um, you know, why does Princess Leia talk about her mother? Oh, well, there's a secondary story to explain that because that doesn't make sense post prequels. Mm. Right. So, like, that's a mistake. Yeah. You need something to acknowledge that, right? Oh, no, no, no. That's not a mistake because. You know, it's a story point. It's become a story point for something else. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know. I don't know that I have a preference between those two, although I, I love what you're saying. Um, I guess that the one thing I find intolerable is people saying it's not a problem because there was this, you know, thing outside of the contradiction that explains it, which is biblical, right? Mm. All the biblical contradictions, somebody says in the Middle Ages, oh, here's the explanation. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is, like I say, I, I definitely have a preference. This thing acknowledge, you say, acknowledge the, the, the thing and either say, you know, try and address it with something in the future or something else. So there's ways and means of doing that. And I think there's, I think Star Trek is better at doing that um, in, a, in a canonized kind of way. Um, well, let's let's get back to So we've talked about like the awesomeness of Khan as a villain mm. and the, the chess match, the grandmaster chess match between the two of them. You know, and I'm reminded of, uh, in terms of that, of, you know, the original series Balance of Terror, uh, one of my favorite episodes, um, you know, which is basically like run silent, run deep in outer space and how uh, this feels like very much a redux of that, of just sort of like really smart submarine commanders going after each other using the third dimension and all this stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, awesome action stuff. Um but having said that, this this theme of death, the Kobayashi Maru, you know, as much as it's referenced in Trek lore, it's about death. Mm. Death is the inescapable, it's the unwinnable condition, right? We're all playing a game that's unwinnable. Yes. Well, there's always that joke, isn't it? Sort of like, you know, rich, poor, black, white, we all, we all come, you know, we, the, the result is always the same. We're all going to die. Um, but I, I like the fact that um, like Savick calls out Kirk as well. Like, because she has to, she, fa- you know, she doesn't fail, but like it's a, it's a no-win situation. Like you can never win the Kobayashi Maru. And there's this sort of like joke had that like, well, Kirk beat it because he reprogrammed it, you know, and but then she's like, well, that's cheating. And he's like, oh, it was seen as initiative. And she's like, yeah, but it means you've never had to, had to face that scenario. Like you even cheated your way out of that in a test. Like you're not willing to face a no-win situation. And he has that sort of acknowledgement of well, no, he even says, I don't believe in a no-win situation. And like I say, so that's what when you say about that, you know, we'll get to the death shortly. But like this film then presents him with one. Like you say, there's a masterful chess game played but like they're, they're, there's always going to have to be you know that that thing he's forced to face up to the no-win situation um and it's going to result in well, death well you know it's not his fault that spock decides to go to engineering and, and no. fix the problem but i mean it is a uh continuation of the feud you know and, and what a wonderful continuation that Khan says well right i've gone into this nebula i've done all these things that i shouldn't have done um but i die i'll take kirk with me Mm. it triggers it sets the genesis device and so it's this wonderful just kind of like you know he talks about hate he talks about you know spite it's this wonderful just kind of like 
right, at the end of this Grandmaster Chess game, I'm defeated. I can still eke out, uh, you know, a draw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I, I find it remarkable. And he, it, I'm not even sure that he knows that he's lost. Oh, he no, he, no, he doesn't. He goes out. He, he goes thinks, out. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. thinks he's won. Yeah, or at least in his mind, and not he's maybe not won because he's obviously he's lost his crew, yeah. but he's a draw. Yeah, but like you yeah. say, he, he's he's it's spite, isn't it? In, you know, in it, just, it, despite everything, like he's managed to sort of get that. He's, you know, he's sort of. I mean, this film is that thing of like your nose off to spite your face kind of thing, isn't it? Like he sacrificed himself and his crew to get that one thing, but I think he goes to his death thinking he's achieved. Yeah. What he what he wanted, yeah, hundred percent. Um, uh, you know, which is, is again is a great a great draft. Like it's not again. This is that thing about like undermining things. Like you know, it's not him. Um, there's no sort of like you've had the Khan moment, but there's no like Khan going like no, like you know, seeing that he failed. Because that would be the other trope. That would be the, the the easier inclination would be sort of like for him to see that Kirk Kirk and the others are saved just before the ship. Yeah, blows up because you know you want them him to see that the the hero survived. No, like let him go to his death thinking he won, or thinking at least that he achieved his his one of his objectives. So again, I like that. Like again, it's it's played out well. Like you're not going to get the easy, um, you're not going to get the easy win. And and so yeah, but again, it comes at, it comes at this cost of uh, Spock entering. Uh, the warp drive and and, and... that does seem so let's talk about those yeah and and the funeral I mean the death scene is basically perfect yeah Um, there's not a second out of place Uh, the call you know from McCoy uh, from Scotty to the captain Mm. you better get down here we know what's going on Mm. He doesn't yet know the cost of what he's done, what he's about to encounter. I mean, we've all been in situations like this, uh, where we don't know how much what we're experiencing will impact us, but somebody else does, mm. right? Um, and I think that test scene is played perfectly. Uh, it's one of those scenes that at this point, because I've seen it a number of times. And so watching it this time, I was, you know, you've got your two main players. And again, like, yeah, everyone sort of gives Shatner a hard time at times. I know he overplays things, but like he and, and Nimoy play this wonderfully. But more than that, I actually want to sort of give a shout out to to Forrest Kelly and um, James Doohan stood in the background, like doing the there, like dumbstruck. Mm. Like neither of them know. You can see it because they're they're all friends of Kirk and, and and Spock as well, and they're grieving and shook in this moment. But there's no sort of like, um, and again, this is where it's worth sort of like you know laying it parallel to the Into Darkness scene. But like they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're they're dumbstruck, like they don't know what to do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And you can see it on on both their faces. They play it wonderfully. Of like, 
like there's just there's just this this, this you know I don't know they're, they're both grieving and not sure what to do but there's no sort of like rushing to the door there's no sort of grabbing of Kirk or anything like this it's just a moment of like we, we there's nothing we can do you know and, and there's, well, there's, a, there's a brutality to this film in general mm. that's there from the first con attack which just feels so brutal and mm. is followed by that surrender Duhan uh, does restrain Kirk. Mm. Kirk's instinct is to go into it, and Duhan restrains him and says, he's dead already. Can you imagine having to say to your loved one, he's dead already? Yeah. He wouldn't, you know, the, what's not said is he wouldn't want you to die trying to save him needlessly. What a horrible calculation to have to make. And how much love is required to stand aside. Having realized your friend has, has understood that calculation and needs this moment. Uh, I love how minimal, mm. again, like going back to how much the script has been worked, how minimal that language is. He's dead already. And then standing aside, and let them have the moment. Let them have that sort of... And again, it could be sort of, again, this could be maudlin and it could be overplayed and, and, and awful. You know. But it, I, I like the fact, again, it's sort of, like I say, it's so well done by Newell because he is blind. Like I say, I, I've, I've always sort of taken that. It's like he's, he's staggering. He's clearly sort of feeling the effects. And just that last moment of, you know, um, I have always been and always will be your friend. It's just... Again, everything we've talked about, everything we've talked about, about legacy and baggage and this sort of thing of how this film wants to keep giving you a gut punch over and over again is summed up in that moment of... Um, and it's not going to cheap out. I mean, we could talk about three and four and on and beyond, but at this point, if this is the swan song, if you were sat in the theatre and you were you were in the cinema and you are a Star Trek fan of it and you watch this... Jesus Christ, like this must be up there as one of those cinema moments where you were just in silence going like, hang on. <laughs> like they are not going to yeah. cheap out on this. And and Shatner plays it brilliantly because he sits there and he sort of yeah. sits there and, and does it, it's, it's quiet but brutal. And then cuts Well, the to way this. they slump over. Yeah. You know, the way they slump over against the transparent barrier between mm. them um, is fantastic. Mm. The way Newmore's radiation exposure gets worse mm. and deteriorates. Uh, everything about it is is iconic and, and deservedly so. Yeah, and I, I agree. And then you get the funeral and you get the sort of the eulogy and you know, the shooting space. Now, okay. I don't, so I don't, let's talk about that. I don't want to undermine anything because I think this film, there's something in this there's. Some this, this this is one of the you you had a nitpick so I'm going to give a nitpick. This film introduced uh, Vulcan as a language. Mm. Uh, this is the first time that so there's a, there's a there's a very brief scene between Savik and Spock and they use mm -hmm. Vulcan and I was like oh Christ I've never noticed that before like is that the first time yes it was and the guy who came up with it is also the guy who created Klingon which was used mm. more predominantly for the third film. <clears throat> um, 
And so I thought that's and really has become cool. its own style language. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. <clears throat> and so I thought that was really cool that they've introduced this scene. They acknowledge these are this is an alien race with an alien language, and between themselves, they will hmm. talk in Vulcan. So I was like, that's really cool. So another thing that this film does that's really really cool. And then we get the funeral scene, and it's very human. <laughs> And there was a part of me going, like, okay, maybe it's a Starfleet thing, but like playing the bagpipes and all this other stuff. And I was a bit like, this feels like, you know, oh, I wish they'd have done something yeah. a little bit more Vulcan for the funeral, maybe. Well, that's interesting that you say that. I mean, <clears throat> as much as I have praised this film, and I, you know, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I, I would put this up as, you know, Seven Seal in terms of uh, a cinematic meditation on death. Mm. Um, that's how much I revere this film. Having said that, I think that funeral is like the ultimate proof that like no, actually um, Kirk is an asshole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like basically like your friend has died. He's used the term in that same Savic scene, he uses, he says, nobody's perfect. He's very human, says mm-hmm. Savic, mm-hmm. right? Human is a, you know, derogatory term to yep. Vulcans. You've seen that in the original series. You see that in the show. Kirk chooses to define him as, of all the men I've known, you know, of he all was the, the most I've human. Known, he was the most. Yeah. Human, um, and you know, I mean, so Shatner's kind of like a little overacting there, but I mean, I take that to mean, in the best of circumstances, that Kirk sees him as struggling, mm-hmm. that he wanted to be greater than himself as part Vulcan and part human, and. Mm-hmm identified what he struggled toward and struggled towards it as best he could and did amazingly well. And I can rationalize it. Having said that, we all know, like if Spock were in that eyes, he'd be like, fuck you. And extending the middle finger <laughs> toward Kirk, right? Yeah. Am I wrong? I mean, like, no, 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 you won't tell me right. Like, it, yeah. it, you know, it's like if I, if I had a funeral and somebody was like, well, you know, the, I, I don't know about his writing. I don't know about his love of science fiction and, you know, stories out of time and space and, and, and Sequard and, and, and everything else. You know, the one thing I know is, like, he definitely supported a, a white America. I'd be like, fuck <laughs> you. I'm, like, in heaven just going, like, can I yeah. kiss on your grave? It's the one, it is the one line, I think. Or there's, there's, you know, there's minute minor lines, but this is the one line that stands out that you go, could have done with being reviewed like because again because of all that legacy and again you know we acknowledge he's half human half vulcan there are better ways you know like you know if if anything he he taught us that you know Hmm. that race was was irrelevant that we are all you know bound by whatever there's ways of doing it like say but like yeah it's the one line that sort of stands out as everything being in everything in that funeral feels so human it's like here's a coffin here's some bagpipes here's a eulogy about how human he is and you're just like hang on and also 
with Suffolk. Here's Amazing Grace. Yeah, exactly. Which, I, which yeah. I really like as a song, okay? Yeah. I'm an atheist. I also really like Amazing Grace. Hmm. It's also really a cliche, yeah. especially with bagpipes. Yeah. And it's religious. How is God's Amazing Grace combining <laughs> with, like, you know, you're so human, mm-hmm. uh, helping us to understand... I don't know. It's like, it's like a, a a Muslim who dies in 1700s America, and they get a eulogy that's like you know, with a with a violin and uh, you know, uh, a eulogy about Jesus Christ or something. Yeah, I want to see Savick like annoyed. Savick should switch <laughs> slaps with slap Kirk at the yes. end of this. Um, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so no, I I agree. It, it's. Um... It's an it's an interesting. It pisses me off every time. It is. It's 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 a really weird ending to this film. It's a bit of a disappointment. However, I do want to sort of compare it. But one of the things is it sticks the landing in the sense of like it's still it, you know well yeah. it has that it has that sense of like because it, then it launches the coffin and it shows his coffin yeah. on on the Genesis planet. Yeah. Which is always going to be a bit of a sort of like you know if this was the end it was fine mm-hmm. it works as an ending and I'm and I'm, right. I'm happy with that. But there's always that, well, there's a door slightly open, <laughs> um, which is fine. I'm, I'm fine with that because you get the rest of the franchise. But when I compared it to and I went, I went away and I had a quick, I didn't watch it all because I can't stand the whole film, but I quickly sort of had a quick flick through and I was like, what is the ending of Into Darkness? Because it has it, they, they switch it and it's obviously Kirk that sacrifices himself and, you know, that you then get, uh, Zachary Quinto sort of a spot going like you know Come and it has a big fight and it's all shite however again like where we said this is a sort of a, a, a tristy on, on death and legacy and that sort of film what happened yeah exactly you get punchy punchy shooty shooty more than that though after having been dead for a certain amount of time the whole point of the final film is get me some of Khan's blood because it can revive Kirk and so the ending of the film is Kirk being revived, but not just revived. He is enhanced now with antibodies or whatever from Khan's blood. So he's actually improved. And I'm just like, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, so infuriatingly bad that watching it, I'm just like, yeah, you've got no legacy. I've, the past film had Kirk and Spock at each other, literally each other's throat. So you've not shown me, you know, yeah. a legacy of them being the best friends or learning from each other. Like it's just cack. And but it, you know, no I shit. I, I mean, I mean, that's one of the worst. I, I mean, literally, I think that is one of the worst franchise movies ever. Mm. I then, mean, I, it's appalling from start to finish. It, it is. And it's a terrible film. But it highlights again. I want to sort of use it as a platform to highlight how good. Yeah. You know, we've sort of harped on a little bit on the funeral scene at the end, but how good. Wrath of Khan actually is as a standalone movie, as a franchise yeah. film, as if this was to be the end of that franchise and that film, like it yeah. worked. Like this film is firing on all cylinders. And well, it, well two it, things that they don't do anymore is you, you're doing a franchise film in the 1980s. You can't assume that people have seen past installments, mm-hmm. right? And you can't assume that you're going to get additional installments. How is this so fucking confusing? Yeah. Right? Like, you know, who knows who the fuck is going to enjoy your movie or your TV series or whatever? You know, and 
don't end on a cliffhanger. This ends on a cliffhanger, but it could be the resolution. Like, mm. it's not the most dramatic thing, right? One cast member died. Are they alive? Ooh, maybe. I mean, it's not the most dramatic thing ever, but it is actually really mystical. Like, it's yeah. it's about as mystical and as Dune-like as, like, Star Trek ever got. It's kind of amazing. Mm. Like, it, it really works for me. Especially with those, you know, look, I mean, you you know my love of Hawaii. The shots of the palm trees mm. and the sun through the palm trees and sort of, I mean, yeah, my heart bleeds for that stuff. Um, but you could, the, the, the ending shot of this film, right? We now know in hindsight that mm. uh, there was obviously a three, which is Search for Spock. And obviously we get four and five and six, right? So we know that there was a continuation of this franchise. So you you and I, with with the, the knowledge of hindsight, can go, oh, it's a cliffhanger. This was an indication of is he alive, yes or no? And we know that obviously it comes back. Maybe one day we'll do three. But one of the things that's interesting, if this was the end, it could just mm-hmm. be taken as a resting place. That's right. He's not, yeah. fi- not been fired into space. He's not going to be going off into, into right. sort of the coldness of space. Actually, he landed <laughs> on, the, on the Genesis planet, and he will rest there on this beautiful planet. Like It can be taken as a restful shot as well. If this had ended on that, you could almost have that as being like, it's a goodbye, like a final confirmation that he is at peace and move on. You know, Well, it- uh, and, and the death of the coffin... Hmm. Contrast to greenness all exactly. around him, the yeah. life. Exactly. Uh, Coming back to this idea of, of death, life, and death, um, and the, the you know the point of this film, like it's all there in that last shot. If this was a modern film, you'd have a final, final little thing where like a light turns green, or do, do you know what I mean? There'd be that thing of yeah, like, you know, or or there'd be some spirit who shows up to explain everything to <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, there'd be a hand that would reach down and touch the coffin or some shit, and you'd be like, "Oh, what was that?" I don't care. It's it works better this way. It really it's such a beautiful shot. Um, no, and and I, I like what you're saying about the ambiguity, and um, you know, I agree with that, and I think that is is part of how successful this film is mm. as a potential final installment. Um, it's frustrating, mm. um, but you know, I also think you know, as we deal with, we're now in a different universe, right? I mean, this is 1982, but there weren't a lot of franchises. No, this is two movies, right? I mean, we are two movies in. That seems like nothing, right? I mean, everybody expected, you know, I mean, every sequel was going to do worse than the previous film. That was just sacrosanct back Mm. then. Um, This has a lot to say about how we understand not just our own deaths, um, but also, you know, how to deal with franchises. and yeah. I know we're low on time, but uh, this concept of the Kobayashi Maru, 
I'm not sure that I've understood fully uh, until this viewing that that is really fundamentally about death. Mm. Um, and my answer is I'm going to be as happy and fulfilled as possible going into my inevitable, you know, uh, winless scenario. And that's it. I think you're right. This film, yeah, and this film, it does. It says basically life is a is a is a, a no win situation. We're all going to go out. You know, no, <laughs> n- nobody comes out. What they, what did they say? Yeah, no one comes out of life alive. You know, no one sort of comes out the end of it alive. That's the point. Um, a point about it's one of the sort of a final thing about sort of eighties and the franchise because eighties is the franchise era. Like it's the birth of the of the true. What what we are going through now started in the eighties. You know. Um, and I, I mentioned a number of films that were sort of, um, I said this was a pivotal point, this pivotal year, 82. I said, you know, Conan, First Blood, uh, 48 Hours. Um, each of those got a sequel, I should highlight, right? Rambo, First Blood, became a franchise that, 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 ran, that, ran, that runs five films, had a cartoon series, a toy franchise, like this, you know, that's, that's a whole different conversation. But the 80s was a machine. The 80s struck onto this notion of being a machine mm-hmm. that would churn out films. And I'm often glad that certain ones did and didn't. But Star Trek got into that. And you see that, like, you know, some some um, installments are better than others. I wonder, I really want us to talk about five. Um, but like you said, you know, I, I, the, ho- the, you know, the horror franchises that sort of like banged out, the slasher franchises that banged out, you know, numbers of films. Police Academy had one a year from 84 to 90. Um, it was just this, that's what the eighties were. Indiana Jones gets three films in, um, in the eighties. You know, the, the, it was just about this thing um, of, you know, franchise, the birth of the franchise became, is, is, is the eighties, but there was still this expectation of diminishing returns. However, like Star Trek to me still feels like, um, slightly different in that sense, you know. Like Star Wars did the thing. Star Wars got to Return of the Jedi and finished, which is you know, well, sort of because you still get the two Ewok films out of the eighties, uh, Caravan of Courage and and whatever the other one is, Moon Over Endor, where it's called, and they did sort of span into cartoons and stuff. So there's still a continuation of that eighties franchisation of, of of material. Star Trek sort of like again they did it in a different way. Like each of the films has got a point like four. And we will, if we do ever do the full story, like four is probably the most eighties Star Trek film ever. Like it's got everything in it. It's got punks in it for God's sake. Like it's a tip, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy film in many ways. It's about eco, you know, sort of like, but then they didn't, then you get like TNG, which is what 87, I think sort of starts. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's this thing of like, you know, Star Trek's not going to sort of fall into this thing of like, oh, it's loads of ways of money. We're going to do this different. We're going to do this. No, they continue on this, this process of trying to give you something of quality and thought provoking. And that's what they do. I, I do think it stands out next to other franchise uh, IPs of the 80s. And, you know, I think it starts with this film. I think motion picture is still a, a good tentpole for me, but I think Wrath of Khan allowed. TN, you know, next generation and, and all these others to be a bit more experimental. So I think it not only is it a good film in itself, it became a good baseline for everything that came after it. 
Well, I think I think it's you know when we talk about the sort of uh, cliched understanding that the even numbered films were good. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because the odd number films crashed the franchise. Mm. So, like Star Trek One was a disaster. Um, it made a lot of money, made its money back. It was successful, but critics and fans both were not very happy. Mm. Um, so Star Trek Two was like, all right, well, this is the last thing. I mean, they made uh, figures and mm. lots of merchandise tying into Star Trek One. Didn't do that well. Yeah. Star Trek Two is, you know, the last gasp of the establishment. No figures made, no merchandise, uh, and it does well, and it's critically acclaimed. It's very much beloved. So now we got to do a third. The third doesn't do as well, and you know, does enough commercially. But they made figures for the third, like they did <laughs> merchandise for the third. And it's like, who's like, I want to have that, uh, you know, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock lunchbox, right? <laughs> who's holding on to that? Star Trek Four, same problem. You're not making lunchboxes for Star Trek Four because Three didn't do that well. Mm. Um, and then you know, five. So I mean, it seems like more like a pinball than it does. Um, you know, anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're in a different era today where the biggest stinking turd, as long as it's got Marvel Disney branding, you know, <laughs> makes uh, half a billion dollars in the, in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I don't understand that. But, you know, okay. You know, so good on them, you know. Uh, I don't. Have, I don't have to go see it. Um, you know. Um, yeah, I, I do think we should. You know, eventually get through all of these films. Mm. Uh, but uh, it's it's fascinating in terms of the development of the concept of a franchise. Oh yeah, yeah. But, the franchise today is a completely different. You know concept of what it was in the 80s because the 80s was a machine like it was all about money but like and once they stopped making a certain amount of money like they dropped and it was it was that simple now it's a wider thing and you know especially when you talk about merchandising that's clearly a much much bigger part of the equation now than it was back then um and uh the other thing as well is the thing to highlight is as well everything we've just talked about franchises weren't for kids in, in the eighties, the franchise films were not kids films. You know, I've talked about like Friday the 13th, Halloween, uh, not Elm street, police Academy, you know, the raunchy comedies, uh, star Wars is probably the closest, but Steven star Trek is not supposed to be ready for it's, Well, Kids can mm-hmm. watch it. I'm not gonna say it's not for kids, but like it's not kid centric. Whilst I would say franchises today definitely have kids in mind. Like, you know, I still like the Marvel films for the most part, but there's clearly that kid angle, the same for, you know, a lot of others. God like, hates you, but, you know, I mean... I, luckily, I'm an atheist, so I've got no problem with that. <laughs> but the same with, like, I'd say everything, like, you know, the same with um, Pirates of the Caribbean and all these other things yeah. where they're, they're designed to have merchandise. Who's asking no, for No, I, 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 I think that's a central observation. 
And, mm-hmm. and you know, this is an adult fucking movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm an adult person. And when I was a kid, I watched adult movies. I watched Rambo. I watched American Ninja. I watched, you know, uh, you know, not that it was a great movie, but I mean, I watched Star Trek. I watched Star Trek too. I was watching this stuff as part of being a kid that you were an apprentice to adult stuff mm. and you watch adult stuff. And nowadays it's all kids stuff all the time. Yeah, I agree. I think that, and you know, we, we talked about it, we were talking about it, and we reviewed it, but then we talked about it a little bit in the hundredth episode sort of touch point. Mm. I think June, one of the things that sort of like, you know, June has its, its issues um, structurally, but doesn't pander to kids. Like that film is weird and it has, it's got big themes and that sort of thing. And I think that's why I like Denny Villeneuve and, in, in, you know, we'll talk about him, but like, that's not pandering to kids. And I guarantee there must've been a conversation at some point where like, how can we, yeah. how can we kidify this or merchandise or monetize this in a different way? And so I appreciate that it doesn't. And I think there's, we need more of that. And I know that sort of like, you know, the whole DC Marvel thing, DC is sort of like, you know, the DC fans are like, well, we're more adult. I won't talk about the Snyder thing, but look at Joker. Like they've done that when they're success and they're mm. done properly, you can do a really good film. So I'm in. Yeah. So, you know, we could talk well, about, I that. mean, the kid, you know, sorry, so, 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 so the kidification of films. I'm going to, I'm, I'm trademarking that, the, that term, the kidification, the worst example of this for me, is RoboCop hmm. to go from the first film to the third film, and then the yeah. and for it to be followed up by well, the, the second to the third. I mean, yeah, yeah. The second well, is that, a, that, a that, rough movie. Yes, I love the second movie. We have to talk about we, yes one and two together at some point. Yeah, but um, yeah, and it, it happened that kidification um, of lots of these of these IPs. And now I think it's just we don't we're not going to go there. We're just there, and I think well, that's the part no. of it. I mean, so thinking about it in in the eighties and, and in the nineties, what they thought about was okay. So we have this IP. The IP is an R rated IP, mm. Mm. but we have this. You know, we have these offers to make Sunday shows. What right? We have interest. How can we turn this into you know a you know Karate Kid cartoon show? Right? How can we turn this into um, something that kids can watch? Okay, well, it's lasers. It's, you know, it's not really, we're going to tone down the anti corporate stuff. I mean, you know, you had exceptions like Captain Power, which was yeah. awesome. But, you know, um, you know, so they were then figuring out how to adapt what they'd done. But nobody went to Verhoeven going like <laughs> make sure you don't offend the children because we might want to merchandise this right today it's all kid first right? yeah exactly that's so the first touch point yes it's not adapting it to kids it's how do we make sure this is available to kids on day one yes um and that i think is a completely different game and that means that i am left out completely no, and I'm, I'm sort of getting there, I think, in some cases, with the same thing. Anyway, I am aware of time. This is a completely different conversation. Yeah. And maybe one for 20th Century Geek will have this one day of, of franchisation and, and uh, the kidification of, of some of these franchises in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. and Because that's the, that's the thing, right? I tell you, from 80, 
from Star Wars through to Marvel, and there is a transition mm. block. Yeah, there's a there's a, uh, a conversation to be had there. Anyway, final and, thoughts. And that's what Star Wars paved the paved the way for. Oh, it, it um, did. Yep. You know, Star Wars two. I mean, Star Trek two is a brilliant. Uh, it is both a brilliant uh, grandmaster chess game that works as a sci-fi story, uh, sci-fi action story, and also as a meaningful rumination on death. Uh, that's one that still stays with me. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I have some problems with the ending. Um, I have problems here and there, but I mean, this is an expertly made film from start to finish. And um, I would be surprised if somebody does not even know Kirk and Spock. Uh, and, and McCoy is very sidelined, right? There was that mm. line where he's going down where he's like, what about my safety? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, where this is that Kirk slash Spock fiction source, right? Um, no, they love each other. Mm. And... Um, it's a it's a beautiful movie in its own right. I think it's I think it's a fantastic film. Uh, what do you think? No, I'm the same. This is one of those films where I can sit and I, this time like this time I can sit, I can watch it, and I can I can ruminate on it, and I can you know critique it in a certain way, and I can take things from it, and I can see those things about we said about death and legacy and and how it structures itself to sort of like set something up to be then undermined and all this like it does these things very very well and i love it for it and i think it's it's um uh very well made and i can also sit and just enjoy it as a good star trek film like i can sit and just be like yeah, this is cool i like this like you know it's quotable i think ricardo montalban brings a fantastic performance as khan I think um, considering that they thought this was their, may well have been their swan song. I think the rest of the cast brings some great performances. I think it does sideline a lot of the less, the, the other cast, like, you know, they're there, Sulu and, and Chekhov and, and Hura and stuff, but they're not really central. Like you say, this is a Kirk Spock story. Um, but by streamlining it down to that, I think it's incredibly watchable. And this is one of those films that, like, if I come across this on something, I'm often like, oh, yeah, I'm going to watch that, I'm going to watch it. If, if this was on TV and it was, I was, I'd stop and start watching it, unfortunately. Like, you'd, yeah, that would, I, it's, it's a wonderfully, wonderfully well-made film. Um, and it stands up as part of my origin story. Like, this is one of those films I watched as a kid where you're like, oh, yeah, this is why these films are ace. Like, I love this. And as I've said, it's meant different things to me throughout my life and as i get into middle age and i watch this and i think back on uh my legacy like you know especially that, that there are scenes in this where you're like yeah no this is this is about as you said the, the life is the kobayashi maru like it's a no-win situation like hmm. um uh and we have to sort of face up to that but we also have to sort of like face up to our legacy like what have we done in the past like you know i'm pretty sure that everyone you know we've all got a khan in our wardrobe somewhere everyone's got a khan waiting for us um, you know, in some way, we've all got skeletons in our closet, and I think that's the sort of important part about this film is that sort of thing of like, no one's a hundred percent clean. Like, no one is the, no one is a hundred percent that backlit hero that sort of steps into the, mm. steps onto the the bridge to save the day. You know, they've all got 
they've all made choices and we've all made mistakes. And I think that, that that's why this film is so good. Brilliantly said, Brent. Yeah, and I think you know I'm gonna if we've, we've talked about Trek versus Star Wars, and I think we both be all we I think we both lean Trek, and I, I more so as I get older. Um, and I think this film is one of the reasons. But I think yeah, we'll go through the rest of the series at some point, and we will start to discuss some of those uh, odd number films as to whether they stand up. But anyway, for now, any any additional final thoughts and and you know what we've got uh, on on Khan. <laughs> No, I'm just thankful for uh, the opportunity to discuss this and for the ability of science fiction. I mean, I think compared to like The Fountain or something like that, this is traditional, right? Mm. Having said that, it interrogates the human condition, right? It doesn't hide from age. It doesn't hide from um, being about something. Mm. And I think that you know, science fiction at its best is able to interrogate the human condition and teach us um, and how we respond to the Kobayashi Maru. Uh, there may be nothing more important. No, I think I think you're right. I think that's where this film stands up. And it, I think it's going to become a bit of a touchstone for us you know, as we think about other films in the future. Uh, I think this discussion will, will come back to some of the films we will talk about going forwards, maybe even in this season, there's a few that sort of like jump into mm. mind. But anyway, we are at time and we have got time. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for taking this journey uh, into darkness with us. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no. <laughs> we will never do that film. I guarantee it. Um, thank you very much to me for listening. I hope you appreciate it. I hope you enjoy our Star Trek conversation. This has been a great one for us. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, does Wrath of Khan stand up for you or do you think we were on the wrong track on this film? Let us know, um, you know, do you think Khan was right? Do you think he was justified in his actions? What, let, let us know what you think about Starfleet. Everything. Come find us on social media at Pod Time Space on Twitter whilst it still, uh, still lives. We'll have some other platforms set up soon, I think. Um, but also, if you like what we're doing, please leave a review. Go onto your podcast catcher and leave a review, preferably five stars, but any feedback we also appreciate. And also check out our Patreon, uh, 20th Century Geek, uh, at www.patreon.com slash 20CG Media. Go find it. There'll be a link down below. And on that, we obviously, uh, Julian and I talk uh, trekking through the Twilight Zone, which is obviously between each of these episodes as well. So go check out that. Uh, and there's more in there, so three seasons worth of Trekking Through the Twilight Zone. Uh, and more than that, though, we've also got me doing 30 Minute Thoughts and uh, me having creators on to talk different things as well. So for now, though, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much, Julian. Um, That's my pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity. And, and you know, I want to thank everybody who pledges because we love doing this. Mm. Uh, you know, I know this means the world to me. And, you know, if you can support us, uh, who knows with Twitter where we'll be, um, you know, in a year. I mean, the, the world is uncertain. But, um, you know, I want to thank everybody for listening and for the support. And I know Scott and I love doing this. We do. We really do love bringing this to you. So it's a real joy. Uh, but anyway, we're not doing, we have got more. We've got the rest of the season, I believe. Next is, is, is Howard the Duck next? Howard or... the Duck, yeah, 1986. 
Whoop, whoop. The end of the first half. Yes, we're rounding out. And we're going to go straight into Howard the Duck. Talking about Marvel franchise, let's go to the very early Marvel films. And an interesting point as to why this one was chosen. Um, so we'll be covering off Howard the Duck uh, in the next episode. So for now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And we shall see you again soon. streams.